Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're going to be in chapter 1 and in chapter 6, but if you just turn to Nehemiah 1, you'll be able to find it. If you need a Bible, get the attention of one of the ushers. They'll, they'll hand one off to you tonight. Um, We are in the second message in our series called Wave Cutters, and uh, the the text really that we're going to go through tonight is the passage or portion of scripture that really inspired this whole series, and so I believe that God has something to say to us through it. We're going to begin by reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then I'm going to pray briefly, uh, and we'll get into our message Tonight, And so Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakilah, And it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan in the palace. Shushan being in Persia, uh, as this takes place during the captivity, while the Jews are still in Babylon, which has now become Persia, and waiting to return, some of them beginning to return at this time. It says that Hanani, verse 2, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So he just asked the question, he says, how are the Jews that remained in Jerusalem for this past 70 years faring, and how are those that have escaped and returned, how is it going for them back in Jerusalem? And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, no defense, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass that when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And so, Father, as we approach your word tonight uh, with our hearts opened and softened and our antennas up and our ears open to hear from you, Lord, we want to ask you that you would speak to us as it relates to our time, what we see happen here, and how you would direct and move us as individuals as part of your church in this age. So would you help us, Lord, now to receive of your spirit? I pray that your anointing fall upon me as I preach and upon us as we hear And in a greater sense, Lord, that you would fall upon our our area, our region, our state, and our country, that we would see a turning, Lord, that your hand would move again and that your power would be known, that your name would be known in the United States of America. So, Lord, please, we pray that you'd hear us tonight. Father, move in this place. Our hearts are opened. We plead the blood of Jesus, and it's in his name that we ask. Amen. So I have a friend in the state of Rhode Island who is retired and he is a fisherman and he has had me um, twice, two times, only two, uh, to come fishing on his boat off the coast of Rhode Island. And um, I learned in that experience that I don't do good on boats in waves. (laughs) <laughs> they don't go along. They don't agree with me, so to speak. I also learned that it is possible to lose your lunch and catch your dinner at the exact same time. You know, so it was an educational experience, but one that I do not think that I will be repeating. I don't think there is enough Dramamine in the world that could get me to go back uh, onto that boat. It is an awful, awful thing. 
Now, I don't know if all of us here have had the pleasure of having that, had that experience physically, but I do know that all of us have, at least to some degree, had the pleasure of having that experience spiritually. Because when you have opposing forces or opposing demands or opposing emotions or even opposing roles in your life that you're responsible for, those things make waves because waves are the result of opposing forces that are all working on the same thing at the same time. And so we live in a world that's full of opposing forces and demands and emotions and roles and things that we have to cope with and deal with. And we all know what that feels like. We've been through it. I don't want to be alone and I don't want to be married. You know, we understand sometimes, uh, all of us, what that feels like. I don't want to be unproductive with my time in my life and I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything. I, I want to be patient and kind and gentle and gracious and long-suffering, but I also have the responsibility of balancing the budget in my house. <laughs> you get it. You start to understand. I don't want to complain, but I also know that there are some things that are not getting done. <laughs> you know, I want to be a team player, but I don't like the other people on the team. <laughs> you know, you understand opposing forces. I want unity, but why can't everyone else see things the right way like I do? You know, there's opposing forces. Now, that's true in all of life. We've all experienced that. But in the days that we're living in right now, there's a whole new set of waves that we're dealing with. We live in a very wavy world at the present moment. The year 2020 is way wavier than 2019 was. And July of 2020 is wavier than June of 2020 was. And most likely September is going to be wavier than July. We understand that this is the kind of world that we're living in, a whole new set of opposing forces. I don't, or I, yeah, I don't want to make genuinely concerned people uneasy and I hate wearing a face mask. <laughs> you guys understand that. I understand why in a pandemic leaders are doing what they're doing, but I still don't like what they're doing or why they're doing it. My kids need me at home and my kids need me to go to work. <laughs> you know, both of those things are true. I have things that I need to do to keep life going and many of them right now I'm not permitted to do because of restrictions. I hear what I'm being told and I see what's in front of my eyes, but what I smell doesn't line up with what I'm hearing or seeing. And every time I talk about it, somebody gets upset. I know that we're all in this together, but some people seem like they're standing very firm right now. And some people, it seems like are drowning fast. And I wonder tonight if there's anyone that is here that feels tossed by the waves. Is there anyone that knows what that feels like at this moment to be spiritually caught up in the opposing forces that make these days the way they are? And if you know what that feels like, then coming out of your spirit right now is the cry, would somebody please throw me a rope? Because I need a little bit of stability. And so tonight, 
I am going to share with you about another wave cutter and I'm gonna throw you a rope. This man, Nehemiah, that we see in, in the, the Bible, he was a pure wave cutter. And so I'm gonna spell a word for you tonight as we look at what happened in his life. I'm gonna spell the word rope. I'm gonna give you four points. I'm gonna start with the result of him being a wave cutter. I'm gonna show you what it looked like. We're gonna to go to chapter six. And then I'm gonna show you the origin of how he became that way. And then we're gonna look at the process that he practiced in order to bring about what came about, and then finally, a, a brief explanation to bring clarity on things. And so those are our four points tonight that we're going to look at as we study this man, Nehemiah. We're going to build it backwards. We're going to begin in chapter six with really kind of the outcome of what happened in his life. And so here's the background so that you understand the context of what's going on in Nehemiah's day, okay? It's been about five or 600 years since David and Solomon, who represent really the apex of Israel's glory and their experience and their light as a nation. And things went south fast. The entire history of the kings and the chronicles has passed by now. God brought judgment upon his nation, his people Israel, because of their sin and their rebellion and their apostasy and their idolatry. And thus they were, they were overtaken by an enemy force. They were brought into a foreign land, those that survived. It's a period of time called the captivity. They lost possession of their borders, their city, their temple, their land, and all of that was destroyed and ruined while they spent 70 years in Babylon, which now has transitioned into Persia through the political fallout of their own problems. And at Nehemiah's time, the 70 years have expired and the people of God are beginning now to return to Jerusalem and they're finding and seeing the desolation that remains now that they have gone through all of this. And so through the process of events, Nehemiah, who was a counselor to the king, Artaxerxes, in Persia, he is given permission and then he is funded and sent by the king to go back to Jerusalem in order to begin to rebuild the city, starting with the wall. And so you need to understand that Nehemiah He's a high-ranking government official in the palace of Persia, a Jew, who now is sent legally by the king and funded and protected to go back to Jerusalem some 500 miles away and to begin rebuilding the city where he is. Most of all, he's called by God. Now, what he finds once he arrives is that although he has the backing of the king, he is opposed by the local government that's there. The governor's name is Sanballat. He has two assistants, one named Tobiah, another named Geshem, sometimes called Geshmu. Okay, not guess who, but Geshmu. And these political forces that are local are in opposition to Nehemiah, even though he is there legally and funded and commissioned by the king, and even more than that, called by God. And so in a sense, what happens is that the transfer papers were signed in Persia, but when he arrives in Jerusalem, the management that's there, they don't like the man who's transferred in. Or to put it another way, the president gives permission, 
But the governor says no and launches a wave of resistance against Nehemiah, who now has this task of building this wall that is before them. That's the context of chapter 6. Now, Nehemiah has come. He has won the confidence of the Jews that are there. He's become their leader. They trust him. He's been able to motivate them to delegate responsibility to them, and the wall is now in the process of being built. And it's in the context of that productive moment that now the resistance comes and Nehemiah has to exercise his spirit as a wave cutter. And thus chapter six, verse one, it says, now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein. In other words, we were making enough progress that there were no more penetrations in the wall. Though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And so Nehemiah has momentum and he's making progress on the project. And in the midst of it, he goes out to check his mail one day and he sees that there is an appearance summons in the mail from the governor saying that we want to see you in a courthouse in order to have a discussion, a conversation with you. Now watch what happens in verse three. He says, and I sent messengers unto them. So he replies, certified mail, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? He essentially replies to this request, this summons, recognizing it for what it is, seeing it for what it is. And he says, no, I'm busy. <laughs> you want to see me, but I'm right in what I'm doing. I know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. So you can take your summons and you can go have dinner with somebody else. That's what he essentially replies. Now watch verse four, because the governor doesn't back down. It says, yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. And so four times he receives this letter from the government summoning him to appear in court. And four times he says, no, I'm busy, pack sand. I'm not coming to your court hearing. You know, I remember there, there was a, a time when I first, um, I, I was probably 18 years old and uh, first driving, I had my first car. It was this really cool Saturn with a six-speed transmission. It was really fun to drive. And, and I discovered one day that you could go through the easy pass lane at like 15 miles an hour. It said five on the sign, but you could go through at 15 and it would still say easy pass paid. Thank you. And so every single day I had to go through this toll booth to go to work, and I thought, well, I want to see how fast I can go through it, and it will still read me. And so every day I pushed it a little bit further, you know, until I was like breezing through it, like 35, 40, you know, <laughs> going through. And every day I'd see it and be like, wow, you don't even have to slow down for this thing. 
Then one day I went to the mailbox, living at my mom's house at the time, and there was four letters, all of them from the state of New York, uh, toll collections divisions, and uh, four on one day. I got all four. They were all together in the same size envelope. The first one said, you were speeding. The second one said, you were speeding. This is a warning. The third one said, uh, this is a warning one more time and it will be uh, suspended. The third one said, your easy pass is suspended one more time and it's revoked. The fourth one said, it's revoked. All four in one day, <laughs> okay? So I had to, uh, you know, tuck my tail and make that right, you know? And I didn't have the, I didn't have the gall or the righteous authority that Nehemiah did. Uh, I couldn't say, well, the president said I could. <laughs> you know, so, so he gets four of these summonses and he asks her to answer the same manner. Now watch what happens because again, no governor backs down when he's disrespected. Verse five. So then Sanballat, his servant unto me, or his servant, uh, sorry, then sent Sanballat, his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And so now he has certified uh, mail delivered from the court, openly read in his sight on the record, wherein was written, it is reported among the heathen that, and Gashmu, that's Geshem, saith it, that you and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause you build the wall that you may be their king according to these words. And you have also appointed prophets to preach of you at Jerusalem, saying there is a king in Judah, and now shall it reported to the king. According to these words, come now therefore and let us take counsel together. And so the governor doesn't get his meeting his way, and so he sends CPS. He sends the IRS. He sends someone now who has the ability to have a little bit more threat. He sends a subpoena with made-up charges that if he's found guilty of would make him guilty of treason before the king, and it would overthrow the entire project. And so he says, do you hear me now, essentially, to Nehemiah as he drums up these charges against him? Now, I love Nehemiah. He's a wave cutter. Watch in verse 8. So then I sent unto him, saying, there are no such things done as you say, but you feign them out of your own heart. You're making this up in your own mind. For they all made us afraid, saying their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah knew that what was being accused against him was not true. And so he still didn't stop his project nor give in. He said, I'm busy. I'm doing what God told me to do. So I am not coming to your meeting. Now, the governor, still not able to leverage the accusation with the strength that he would need to stop Nehemiah, he tries another approach. Verse 10. Afterward, I came unto the house of Shemaiah, he's a Jew, supposed to be an ally, supposedly a friend, the son of Deleiah, the son of Mehadebael, who was shut up, and he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. So here's this guy who is a Jew who is in house arrest 
because of some offense that he committed against the governor at some point. And Nehemiah is in his house. And this guy says, look, you don't want it to happen to you the way it has happened to me. This governor is no joke. And if you get on the wrong side of him, you're going to end up on house arrest just like I am. So what you need to do right now is you need to go to the temple, cling to the horns of the altar, show a little bit of humility, and show this guy Sambalat that you're submitted to what he's saying, and you need to reverse course, essentially. That's the counsel that Nehemiah gets that he did not ask for. You ever gotten counsel from someone you didn't ask for it? Gets counsel that he did not ask for from this guy. Now watch Nehemiah. He's our example. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and sin and that they might have matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. In other words, if I go into the temple right now and do as he's telling me to do, I am going to give validation to their accusation. Because why do I need to hide if I'm not doing anything wrong? And so even if the charges that they've drummed up against me are false... If I try to cover my tracks and hide, then it gives the appearance as though I'm guilty, even though I'm not. And he recognized the need to stand up and be bold in the face of the opposition that he was facing because of the strength that he needed to move forward, that it would be uh, taken away from him should he not. Now, it's interesting to realize all of the waves that are are kind of against him at this point. If you think about it, um, he has the backing of the king. That's one force. Yet he has opposition from the government. That's another force. He has the confidence of the people. That's another force. He has the burden that's in his own heart to do this great work. That's another force. And he has the calling from God. That's, I mean, this is a storm. You ever seen like when all the currents all come together at the same time? And this is kind of what he is under all at this time. And all of these things are waves. His enemies, his well-meaning friends, <laughs> all of it is against him. Now watch verse 14, Nehemiah's final response. He says, my God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat, according to their works, and on the prophetess Noadiah. Now, we don't even know what that interaction was, but again, there was someone well-meaning that was trying to oppose Nehemiah, stop him. And it says, and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. That was the motive, that was the desire, that was the goal of Sanballat and Tobiah, to weaken his hands and put him in fear. Now, Nehemiah stood for none of it. He said no to five attempts. He said no to this false prophet that told him to run to the temple. And everything that tried to stop Nehemiah from doing what God had called him to do, that the king had made legal for him to do, he said, I will not stop because of what consequences might come, because of what hindrance it might be, because of what delay this might mean because of what the future would hold if I give in. And thus, he did not give in. And watch verse 15. 
It says, so the wall was finished in the 20 and fifth day of the month, Elu, listen, in 50 and two days. It was done in 52 days. Now you say, well, that might sound like a very long time. But first of all, this wall was several miles around. The city at that time, they believe, was about 135 acres in its footprint. And this wall needed to be rebuilt, and the gates hung, and he did it in 52 days. And if you think that's a long time, I just want you to realize that we have had a leader in our nation that has been trying to build a wall for four years, and he has not been able to build one foot. And it brings a little bit of context into what it took for Nehemiah to do what it was that he needed to do. Now, I want you to realize that the threats that were forged that were, that were waged against Nehemiah came to nothing. The fears that he would have had never materialized, and the opposition against him did not prosper. None of it came to pass. But four times in this chapter, you can count them on your own, four times in this chapter, it tells us that the weapon that was forged against him was fear. And that is that the enemies were seeking to get him to be afraid. And Nehemiah knew the danger of that fear because he keeps saying it over and over again. He says, they sought to put me in fear that my hands would be weakened. They sought to put me in fear that the hands of those that were with me would be weakened. He realized the power that fear would have if he let it in and he had a conviction in himself that I cannot give in to fear. I must stand against it. I must resist it. The future success of what God has called me to do stands or falls upon my courage and confidence, and I cannot give in to fear. FDR, probably wrong about a lot of things, but he was right about one. He said that we have nothing to fear but what? fear itself. And you don't have any idea how profound that statement actually is because fear will cripple you. Fear will confuse you and get you confused about what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And fear is contagious and it spreads to those around you and it stops all progress. It clouds all visions and it kills all callings. Fear is a problem. When Peter was sinking, remember when Jesus said, come out on the waves? Remember when Peter said, Jesus, if that's you, bid me to come. And Peter stepped out of the boat and he began walking on water. He began doing something that was impossible, impractical, scientifically wrong because Jesus had told him to do it. But it says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 30, it says that when Peter saw the wind boisterous, he became aware of the waves that he was walking upon. It says that he became what? Afraid. And he began to sink. It was fear of Peter being in a position that he didn't understand that wasn't familiar to him. He let fear in. And once fear came in, he began to sink. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this to you and I emphatically. He says that our God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. But we have the choice of whether or not we're going to let fear in 
or whether we're going to keep it on the outside. That's up to us. And if we don't understand what fear is and what fear does and where fear comes from and why it's being thrown at us, then we're in danger of capitulating unto it. Well, you ask the question, if this is the result, and this is, I mean, it's amazing. How many of you would get a summons in the mail and just tear it up and throw it in, in the garbage? And say, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. That's unconstitutional. This, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. How many of us would do that? I think not many. And Nehemiah just, he just blazes right through. And you ask the question, you say, well, what kind, of, what kind of background did he have that gave him this kind of courage? Where did this come from? Because people don't come out of the womb like this, <laughs> you know, having this kind of courage and this kind of understanding and this whole thing. How did he get here? And so I want to move from the R, the result of him being a wave cutter, to now the O, the origin. Where did this come from? How did this get inside of him? And I want you to understand that what this chapter is not teaching us is that you should just rebel and that you should just do whatever you want. And if you take that from this, then you're going to grossly misinterpret and misrepresent the passage and even the call of God that he has upon your life. There's a history behind this. And to see it, we go back to chapter one. If we look back in chapter one, Back at Nehemiah, we see that his resolve and his conviction came out of a deep calling from God. The origin of it was the calling. You know, I don't know, have you ever, have you ever been around someone and they talk about their calling and it kind of throws you into a little bit of a tailspin? You know, like you'll watch like some great Christian person that you look up to and they say, well, I have, God called me to, you know, win the world or something like that. Or God called me to, to start this thing or God called me to, and you, and you sometimes I, I've looked at that and I've been like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, did you get a letter in the mail? Did he DM you? Like, I, cause I want to know the call of God in my life. I want to know what I've been called to but it doesn't seem like it's that easy. It's just like one day you wake up and there's an audible voice. And if there is God, would you do that for me? Because I'm that thick and I need that kind of clarity in my life. But it doesn't really happen like that. And even when we look at Nehemiah and the calling that God placed upon him, it, it was a process. There was something to it. And it's given to us. It begins there in verse 4, back in chapter 1, what we read at the beginning. Nehemiah had asked, how are the Jews in Jerusalem faring. How are they doing? And when he gets report that they're not doing well, they're in reproach, they're being oppressed, they're, they're impoverished, they're not doing well at all, watch what happens in verse 4. It says that it came to pass that when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah comes into a situation where he simply has a conversation, and the result of that conversation was a deep emotional response. And it was so deep, he was so moved by what he heard was going on back in his homeland that it caused him to fast and pray and mourn and weep. And it was from that that the call of God then materialized. And if you want to know what the call of God is in your life, whether it be you're a young person and you're looking forward to, to, to what God has for your future, or whether you're at just a stage of your life right now where you say, my whole world just got turned upside down and I want to know what's my place now. God, what am I supposed to do right now? Here's how you find the call of God for your life. Ask yourselves this question. 
what makes you angry, what makes you weep, what do you love, and what do you do, what can you do? And if you can find the place where those four things intersect, what makes you angry, what makes you weep, what do you love, and what can you do? Find the place where those four things intersect and you are very close to finding and discovering the call of God for your life, whether it be for the long term, the big picture, or the short term, the small picture of today. Find that place. That's the origin of Nehemiah's calling. He was deeply moved by what he heard. I have a, a friend who, um, he is a naturopathic therapist, but he wasn't always that. He was uh, a producer, a video producer, big time for the WWE, and he was making buku bucks. He was the guy that, if you ever watched professional wrestling on TV, he was responsible for the camera angle that you were viewing at any particular time. It was a very high-powered job. It was a very high-paying job, and he was very good at it. But then what happened is that his mother uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and as he walked through her cancer issues with her, he picked up on the fact that her cancer doctors were not dealing rightly with her. They were using her more as a customer than a patient, and he watched systematically as what they did to her as they weakened her body with chemotherapy, and ultimately she did not die of cancer. She died from chemo. And he saw this, and in his particular instance with his mother and her doctors, things were not handled right. And he got angry, and he wept, and he combined that with a love that he had for God and for God's creation, and he was fascinated with herbs and things that God made, and it caused him to realize, God, if you have placed something in the world that we're vulnerable to, a cancer, some kind of disease, then you have probably placed things in your world that are the remedy for this. And he began to study because he was emboldened by his passion, and he had the mind and the ability, and he changed his whole life, and he discovered the call of God in what made him angry, in what made him weep, in what he loved, and what he could do. And it radically transformed him when he found where those four things intersected, and today his life looks a whole lot different than it did pre this, and he has helped a whole lot of people, myself included, you know, because of what God has placed in his life. And so that's the origin. Nehemiah was moved by what was going on and it resulted in the calling. Now that was the origin, but let's move on to the P, which is the process. Because just because you have a call of God, he tells you what he wants you to do, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's done. Okay, sometimes we think, well, God called me and so now it just happens, right? No, it doesn't just happen because now you have to walk in it. You have to go do it and it's not going to be easy, whatever God has given to you. So what's the process? If you're taking note, you can write down these things. It began with the mourning and the weeping. He, he took the time to feel deeply what was going on around him. He took the time to really look at it and sit in it and feel it and see who was affected by it and feel what they felt. He grew in apathy. He let God soften his heart and he thought through the entirety of the situation. Then what he did is that he fasted. Did you see that in verse four? 
He began to fast. You know why fasting is important? Because fasting not only clears your head, which is a good thing if you're going to make a move in your life, but it also reveals imposters. You know what imposters are? Our poster, imposters are the ambitions, desires, and drives that you get after a good cup of coffee. You guys know what I'm talking about? Or after a great night of sleep and you're well-rested and refreshed and you think, you know what, I'm going to go save Africa. You know, and all of a sudden, like, I just feel called to save the world. You know, I'm full, I'm healthy, I'm fed, I'm caffeinated, I'm ready, God, let's go. And then by two o'clock in the afternoon, you're like, you know what, maybe I'll just keep my job. <laughs> you know, that's an imposter. But what fasting does is that fasting puts your body in a weakened state and your mind in a clear state, and it helps you to sift between the call of God and just the energy of life. And so he takes the time to fast. Then, number three, he prayed. And you, we look at his prayer. We see it in chapter 1, verse 5. If you look at what Nehemiah said there in that prayer, it's verses 5 all the way down through 11. What it reveals is it reveals that Nehemiah really understood the situation that he was in. He saw it for what it was. We're in captivity because we sinned. But God, your word says that you're merciful, that you'll forgive, and that you'll bring us back again. And so then he says, God, would you please lead me, show me my place in it, and open a door for me to make a difference. That's huge. Because a lot of people, they feel a call of God. They never consult with God. They just go. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He shows God in prayer that he really understands the circumstances. And then what he asks for is reasonable. He just says, God, lead me in fulfilling this calling and just help me to not miss it when you open the door. That was his prayer, a great way to pray when you're seeking to understand the will of God for your life. Well, then number four, what he does is he looks for the open door. He becomes aware of the fact that he asked God for something. And so now he begins to actively search out for the answer. And you know what's amazing? The door opens. It's in chapter two, the first segment of the chapter. Again, you can read it on your own, what happens there. But the thing that's remarkable about it is that it happens real fast and he could have missed it real easy. Because here's how it went down is that Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer for the king, he goes in and his countenance is sad. And the king catches on to it. And the king says, Why are you, what's wrong? I see something. Why are you sad? And, and it says that Nehemiah prayed real quick. He doesn't tell us what he said, but he says, I prayed. I prayed real fast. God, help me. And he just said, look, he goes, I'm sorry. I know, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm representing you. I'm on the clock. I need to compartmentalize all this. He says, but I just need you to understand that the people of my ancestors are in great affliction in Jerusalem. And what they're going through right now is weighing so heavy on my heart, it is absolutely impossible for me to do my job without being distracted by the emotions of what they're feeling and thinking and going through right now. That was the open door. Nehemiah tells the truth. And the king says, what can I do? And Nehemiah says, if you're willing, give me a letter, send me, give me money that I might pay, give me an entourage that I might be protected, and send a letter to the Home Depot in Jerusalem and tell them to give me whatever I ask for. And the king says, done. He prays for an open door. The open door comes. He walks through it, and he sees the blessing of God in the king giving him permission, giving him 
permission. The door came, and it came quick. And I give you this word. Listen, if you're praying for an open door, you better be ready for the open door because sometimes doors open and close in a moment, and you can miss it. He caught it. And so he goes through the open door. Now he's got the commission, the backing financially, politically, provisionally from the king, and he goes. He leaves Persia. He goes to Jerusalem, and this is number five, this part of the process of Nehemiah becoming a wave builder, and this part we're going to read. It's verse 11 of chapter 2. I want you to see it because it's that important. Watch it. He says, so I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days and I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, watch this, neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. I don't know if it was a horse or a donkey or a lion. But I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, the sewage area, and viewed, looked at the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not where I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the rulers or to the rest that did the work. Listen, here's number five in this process of discovering the call of God and really becoming a wave cutter is that once you realize what it is that God has asked you to do or you're, you're discovering your place in a given situation, you do not go and seek the counsel of every single person and ask them what they think you should do. But what you do is you stare at the situation until you know what to do. You stare at it. You look at the factors. That's what he goes up and down, back and forth. He looks at it from the, the most lowest point where the sewer port was. Then he goes way up to the high point and he looks, he just stares for three days. He doesn't talk to anybody. He doesn't ask anyone's advice. He just knows he's got something to do. He doesn't know how to do it. It's a huge responsibility and he stares at it until he knows what to do. I remember early on as a carpenter when I was just learning, it was kind of baptism by fire. And I'd gotten laid off uh, from, from a union apprenticeship position that I was in. And someone in the church encouraged me, just go do something. Like, you're, don't sit around. Like, go do something. So I asked this uh, couple in the church. They wanted their basement finished. I asked them if they'd hire me to do the job. And they said yes. So I start finishing this basement, and I, I kind of knew what I was doing. You know, uh, I knew enough that I felt like I could get through it, it with help, you know, if I needed it. You know, so I'm doing this. And I remember I came to this point where the ceiling that I was building was lower than the, the window in the room. In other words, the ceiling was going to come right into the, the middle of the glass in this window. And I was like, oh my goodness, I just ruined these people's house. You know, <laughs> like I totally just built this whole ceiling and it's too low, you know. But, but what I did is I just sat there and I just stared at it. 
because there was nothing else I could do. Like, I was just like, oh my goodness. And I just stared at it and I stared at it and I stared at it and I just looked at it. I wasn't thinking about like what I was going to eat for dinner, but I'm just like, what am I going to do right now? And I'm just looking at it, looking at it, looking at it. And over the course of about 20 minutes, I began to see exactly what to do. And I was like, I know what I can do right now. I can, you know, and I'm not going to go through all that because we don't have time for, for that and this. But I was like, I know that this is going to work. And so I did it and it worked. And, I, and, and it was like the beginning for me of something. Like I realized like God gives wisdom in every situation. If you'll just stare at something long enough, you'll know what to do. And it applies in every part of your life. If you're going through something right now with your kids, whether they be young or teenagers or old or something in your family, just stare at it. Stare at it. Literally sit down and stare at the problem until you know what to do. If you're going through an issue with your employment or with whatever it is, stop asking everyone's advice. Stop searching it on Google. Stop and just stare at it. Look at it until you know what to do. That's what Nehemiah does. He just stares at it. And then finally, number six, what he does is that he listens only to the voice that matters. Only to the voice that matters. Now, why is this important? Here's why. Because it taught Nehemiah a lesson that he was going to need later. Remember in chapter six, remember when he was in the house of Shemaiah, the, 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 the guy under house arrest? who was saying, you need to run into the temple and plead for mercy and humble yourself? You know, how did Nehemiah know that he shouldn't trust people even though they seem to be trustworthy? He knew it because he learned that if he waited on his God, he would hear counsel that could not fall. And thus it's important that we understand we need to listen to God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And if you commit your works unto the Lord, the Bible says that he will establish your thoughts. You will know what to do. So stop searching and start staring right at the problem. Look right at it. And God will give you wisdom. You'll know what to do. Now watch what happens uh, in, in Nehemiah um, chapter 2, verse 17, because now he does. He knows what to do. So verse 17, then said I unto them, to the people that were the workers, the Jews in the region. You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the walls of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Okay, the process of moving into his calling in fasting and praying and asking and waiting and trusting and building and seeing led him to the place where he knew exactly what to do, exactly what to say, and when he did it, it worked. The people rallied behind him and they began to work and it took 52 days for them to accomplish the task. And Nehemiah knew there would be opposition, but he knew how to cut through it. Now, finally, number, letter E in this rope that I'm throwing you guys. We've looked at the result. We looked at the origin. We looked at the process. A brief explanation here. Listen to me carefully. Christian is not anti-government. Okay? Do you understand that? That Nehemiah was not a rebel Nehemiah was deeply devoted to the king of Persia. 
You can hear it in his conversation with him, and you can see it in the trust that the king extended to Nehemiah when he sent him with the money and the backing and the letters and all the rest that he sent him with. Nehemiah was deeply devoted. He was a Jew and he was a patriot of Persia. He was both of those things at the same time. And God had told the Jews to seek the well-being of the land of your captivity. In other words, you're not to rebel against it. You're not in opposition to it. And thus Nehemiah earned the trust of Artaxerxes and he was devoted to Artaxerxes and to Persia. You say, well, where's the line? Here's the line. Is that Nehemiah was more devoted to God than he was to his country. Now, it's wonderful when those two things are in harmony, isn't it? When serving God and serving country is one and the same. But when it happens that a country rises above the name and the command of God, then the call of you and I is to not abandon our allegiance to our country, but we must stand with God. What did Peter say to the Jews in Jerusalem when they commanded him not to preach in Jesus' name? He said that we must obey God rather than men. And it is not an either or, it's a both and but it's an allegiance to God that supersedes allegiance to government. I was reading Esther just recently, and I was reading about Mordecai. And Mordecai is an amazing example of this because Mordecai told Esther to disobey the king. Then he saved the king's life, and it's like back to back. It was both. He wasn't against the king, but he was pro-God. And it's important that we understand that going forward because when the decree came, the decree of the governor came that created the waves, Nehemiah obeyed God rather than Sanballat, the governor who told him. And so what's the conclusion in light of all of what is going on in our world today and the waves that we're facing and our desire to be wave cutters in this? Listen to me carefully because here's the message tonight, wave cutters, is that you do not need permission from anyone to do what God has called you to do. Do you understand that? If God has called you to raise your family and lead your family in a particular way, then you raise your family and lead your family in the way that God has called you to raise. So far as it's not against scripture and you're going to say that God told you to do something that was against what he already said somewhere else but you don't need the approval of your parents or your in-laws or your peers or your siblings or your neighbors or anyone else in your school district or anyone else to do what it is that God has called you to do in the leading of your family. If God has called you to run a business, you don't need someone's permission to run your business. You might have to get creative but you don't need permission from someone to do it. And listen to me, running a salon can be as spiritual as running a church if that's what God has called you to do. If that's what God has given you to feed your family and to make provision and to glorify his name, and that's the place where you shine, then that's the place where God has called you to be and you don't need permission from anyone to do it. And so where do I fit? What makes you sad? What makes you angry? What do you love? What can you do? Find the place where those intersect. You're going to find the call of God. Take the time to really understand what's going on right now in the world. Feel it. Understand the consequences of what is and what's coming and what could be. And feel it, not just for yourself, 
but for the people around you, for your kids and their grandkids, successive generations. Understand how we got here, what it costs. Take time to weep and mourn and consider what's going on and really understand it. Then commune with God about it. Take it to him in prayer and stare at the situation that you're in right now, how it applies to you and how it affects you. Stare at it until you know what to do. God will lead you and show you what to do. Then cancel out the other noise. I've got these noise-canceling headphones. They are amazing. They're the best invention that ever came into the world. my, My family hates them. Because they're like, Dad, Dad. And I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> I can't hear anything else. Listen, put them on because there's so much noise. And then start your engine. Move in what God has called you to do. Listen, there's a lot more things that are probably going to change in our world over the next several months. But I want to close by reading Psalm 46 to you. And I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it. And I want you to hear what God says, because we're going to be wave cutters. He says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will we not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, the waves thereof, For there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early. Get out of the waves and get in to the river. Amen? And so, Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to overlay our lives against the example of Nehemiah. And that increasingly, God, you would teach us what it means to walk only in your calling, to listen only to your voice, and to heed only what you ask. So be with us, Lord, individually, as a church, as a society, as a people, as the salt and light of the earth that you've called us to be. May your spirit rest upon us, and may you send us forth in power. And may we possess a boldness that rises above our fears. And may we walk with you and live for you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We bless your name tonight. And we ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.